Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. If you're enjoying Pirate Living Podcasts and all the content we bring to you each week, you can support us and buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash pirate living. Other ways you can show your support as well, subscribe and follow Pirate Living Podcast, rate and review our show, and share this podcast with your friends. You can find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcast to keep up with the latest episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Pop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us uh, to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs. And as usual, keep creating good trouble. And now on to today's episode. Welcome to Pirate Living Podcast. We are your hosts, Kristen and Karan. On this podcast, we are highlighting ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are pirates who take small, bold actions daily to create social change. Pirate life is all about rebelling and breaking the rules for good. Creating lasting social change starts by first breaking our inner rules. After all, the hardest rules to break are your own. The pirates we highlight have dedicated themselves to creating good trouble. Today, we're talking with Courtney Olson. Courtney is the CEO of Girl Clothing, best-selling author, and has been dubbed the world's deadliest legs by Lee Stanley. After surviving a rape, an eating disorder, depression, and drug and alcohol addiction all before she was 21, Courtney knows how important it is to turn trauma, pain, and despair into power, strength, and confidence. Courtney has been on a mission to empower women across the world, and she certainly has had a huge impact on my own life. Courtney is a real force to be reckoned with and a true pirate queen. So Courtney, we are so excited to be talking with you today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So, um, well, first of all, starting off here um, with this book that you wrote, your memoir, Crushing It, How I Smashed the Diet Culture addiction and the patriarchy. (laughs) What I'd like for you to tell us is summarize these, I don't know what, 400 and something pages and uh, just share with us book review, please. (laughs) Well, just share with us a bit of your journey and how you got to where you are today. That's a great question. And I, I know that thing is daunting. It's so big. You know, I started writing it, uh, 10 years ago, not knowing that my story was kind of really just getting started. Uh, but you know, it, it was, it's probably definitely the hardest thing I've ever done harder than getting off speed, Oxycontin, alcohol, all combined. (laughs) Don't recommend people write books, (laughs) really passionate about it. But, um, yeah, the book is basically just that it's a memoir and it's split into three parts you know, the first section is really highlighting, uh, the root of my body dysmorphia and the driving force behind, you know, why I felt the need to put substances in my body to change the way that I felt. And the second part is really about discovering the muscle fetish industry. And that was such a huge watershed for me because I'll just let you know, I don't have a lot of fancy words. So (laughs) that's one of them. Watershed. (laughs) No doubt. It had such a pivotal impact on me because you know, growing up, I wanted to look like Kate Moss and I had no idea that there was this whole world out there, uh, of men who admire and appreciate to say the least female muscle. And, um, 
In fact, it's it's had such a big impact on me that we're I'm working on producing a docu series right now around it. And then the last part is really about you know analyzing um, the world in which we live in and how this construct of the patriarchy comes into play and gender roles and you know all that kind of stuff. So it's um yeah it's quite a read, but I think it's you know there's something in there for everybody. I've had a lot of guys read it and and still be able to find stuff to relate to, even though it's primarily an addiction memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot to, to analyze. And, you know, then the end of each chapter, there's a section called do the work or do the effing work, if you will. Uh, cause you know, it's just so easy to not do that stuff. And until you put pen to paper, you know, you don't really make a lot of those aha connections and work through your trash. We just kind of mull it around in our head and that doesn't get us very far. So it's a little bit of an interactive book. And, um, it, you know, again, like I said, growing up, I was desperate to look like Kate Moss and, um, had no idea what alcoholism was, uh, and grew up with an alcoholic mother. So taking in all those behaviors and not realizing that it is learned behavior as well as hereditary. And so, um, there's a, there's a big emphasis on that as well and helping educate people around what that is, you know, cause had I known that my mom wasn't a bad person that needed to get good and that she was a sick person that needed to get well, I think my life would have turned out much differently, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, um, I mean, I could, <laughs> did you want me to walk you through the story? Or, <laughs> I don't know how much time we have. I don't, I don't want to be here till Christmas. So <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, if anyone wants to know the full story, buy the damn book and read it. There you go. <laughs> it is it is a great book. And I do did appreciate the, the fact that at the end of each chapter, I mean, w- one of the things that we do as coaches, Kristen and I, is a lot of story work. And you, like you said, putting pen to paper is is the crux of like our coaching practice, right? So um, the fact that you have that in there to help guide people um, with doing the work is super helpful. Right. Um, and an extra, extra bonus that you don't, don't usually get in a book. Um, I mean, I I would like to start personally with the stuff that you do with, with, uh, girl clothing and everything that has had the most impact on me. Um, and I'm wondering like, where did this like obsession with trying to look like Kate Moss come from? for you yeah, that's, a, that's a great question I mean it's I forget how old you are but I'm 40 and so growing older up, than you are you really <laughs> I am yeah no kidding okay then yeah it's, that's good you got a podcast sharing your secrets with the people because absolutely I thought you were 30 or something but anyway I'll take um, it yeah. <laughs> uh so oh yeah that's right because you're you've going through the pause yourself or all that stuff. So that absolutely that makes sense. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, in the nineties, she was the, she was the thing. And I remember, you know, as I talk about in the book, seeing her for the first time in a magazine when my mom was tanning and I was stuck sitting in that room with her thumbing through that and seeing that image of her looking like a goddamn flamingo, you know, standing on one leg with her other leg she was basically in the tree pose more or less. And her collarbones were sticking out. She was just so thin. And that had such a huge impact on me as a young person, you know, thinking that that was the definition of beauty. And it just was emblazoned in my brain that that was what was desirable. 
And, you know, the nineties in general, it was all about that heroin chick look and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. Um, you know, and not realizing how much that stuff plays into our subconscious as young people. Um, and what's terrifying today is obviously how many young kids are on social media and, you know, previously <laughs> we didn't have to deal with that as young people, we just had magazines and billboards and whatever other small number of avenues there were to consume media. And now, you know, they have goddamn 12 step programs for people that are addicted to technology. So it's like a drug addiction wrapped into one big bullshit burrito, (laughs) you know, so they're, these kids are literally consuming this stuff 24 seven and it's, it's really terrifying. Um, right. So, and, and just the level of, um, assholery that comes with, you know, even just being in stories on Instagram, uh, Snapchat is, is a lot worse, but you know, there, there are so many filters that are easy to access that just make you look impeccable, mm-hmm. like not even of this planet. Right. And that is subconsciously getting burned into their brain every single day, day in and day out, hour after hour as to what they should look like. So when they go and look in the mirror, it's like, oh my God, I'm disgusting. I'm old. I'm, you know, so it's, it's, a uh, it's, it's really quite unfortunate and it almost feels like it's just, it's too big to tackle now, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, just bring the asteroid on, really. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what's left, you know? <laughs> so that's uh, that's really where this drive came from was to start a different narrative. And, you know, it's, it's challenging because I'm into bodybuilding, right? Mm-hmm. I, I like to look like a science project. I like to look like an action figure and um, not posting a ton of photos of your progress or you know, celebrating your accomplishments or, you know, it's, it's hard because whether they're before and afters or progress photos, you know, they're still toxic Mm -hmm. because we're still putting emphasis on what we look like as to, you know, opposed to our characters, our characteristics and our nature and, you know, our morals and values. And so it, I find it a really slippery slope. I really do. And I think there's a lot of slippery slopes out there today, you know, and a lot than which we can't really discuss freely because there's so much canceling going on and, you know, mm-hmm. um, people just aren't open to having productive conversations anymore. It's just more about being right and starting fights. And, uh, it's like this theme of division is really just running rampant. So mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. good to be able to have platforms like this to discuss this stuff. But yeah, to <laughs> give you a really long drawn out answer to your short question was, it was definitely um, just being influenced as a young person to, to think that that's what was desirable and beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. So two things to go with that. Like, first of all, as a coach, I often struggle because I want to like celebrate um, any of my clients' successes, but I'm also very aware of like, I, I don't put the before and after or whatever pictures, even the progress pictures um, of my clients, because I don't, that's not what I'm about as a coach. Like that, that result is, is a side effect of the work, maybe a side effect of the work that they've put in to um, bettering their health. Right. 
Um, so it is one of those things that I think about a lot when, um, my clients come to me and they want to celebrate like a weight loss. Um, whereas I'm more than happy to post when they come off of like medication with their health journey. I'm like, yes, let's share this. Right. Um, (laughs) right. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because you did mention like learned behaviors, um, and a lot of the clients I talk to and, and work with specifically in nutrition, they learned a lot of their, um, their, like, um, their behaviors with dieting and stuff from their mom. Is that something yeah. that you got from your mom as well? hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. She was on a new diet every other week, you know, and back then, um, pills, the ephedra, all these things that were still legal. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, um, God, what was it? Thermomax in, uh, college. I don't know if y'all had that up there in Canada. I doubt it, but Mm-mm. down here, ephedra was the bomb, <laughs> you know, you get up on that stuff and you're just ramped. And then of mm-hmm. course you add in drinking and it was just a, a recipe for disaster. Cause I should have been blacked out hours ago, but I'm still going because I got ephedra pumping through my body, mm-hmm. you know, so diet pills, diets. I remember by the time, I mean, I got to college, I was doing like the Atkins diet. And before I started the Atkins diet, um, and in fact, I had my dad's like original book from the seventies. Mm-hmm. It's like printed out, you know, scrappy, gross PDF that, um, <laughs> he had had for years. And so before that though, it was like fat-free everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I was eating like canned, um, vegetables. Veg all was the name of it. It was like <laughs> carrots, potatoes, and green beans, I think all diced up. And then I would have, um, a white baked potato with barbecue sauce, right? So mm-hmm. just chocked full of sugar, but all this stuff was fat-free. Mm-hmm. So my eyes, you know, I was, I, I was killing the game. I remember the Snackwell cookies. It's fat yeah. free. Did you guys have the <laughs> yep, Snackwells? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. Fat free cookies. What? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta eat them all. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's tragic to think back and like, you know, ponder like, God, how we had no education around that stuff, you know? <laughs> so um, it's, it's terrifying again, but yeah, fat free. Um. And then of course the whole time I'm drinking, not realizing that's just empty calories. Um, just had not a clue, not a clue. Um, Atkins. And then what else did I start doing? Oh, cabbage soup diet. I mean, you name it. I did it. So yeah, definitely got that from my mom. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> so then in terms of like health and nutrition and exercise, how did that part of your life kind of turn around? Um, great question. I, when I got to university, I found the gym because prior to that, I, you know, never really went to a gym. Um, I, so when I started college, I I was 17 for a short period of time, a couple months. Um, and in high school, you know, I played basketball as a cheerleader. I skied, you know, I was somewhat athletic, And then of course, growing up, uh, my dad had equipment out in the garage and my brother's eight years older than me. So, you know, I'd always go out there and follow them around. So when my brother was 
16, I was eight, you know, and I just wanted to do everything that he did. So um, I, you know, would go out there and tool around and stuff. So I, you know, felt comfortable around weights, but I just never had um, any motivation to do that until I got to college. And then once I got in there, I knew how to do very little. So I taught myself some really bad form and did a bunch of stuff repeatedly, like the um, abductor and adductor machine. (laughs) Hence, you know, I I didn't realize I was training for watermelon crushing well before I knew what my future looked like. Um, So that machine, and then I would uh, do, you know, tricep rope pull downs just incessantly. So that's why I always have like massive triceps, uh, you know, so I would go in there for two, three hours a day. And that just became my, my new thing. Um, because prior to that, you know, I'd spent the year on methamphetamines trying to be skinny. So it just seemed like a logical transition to get into the gym. But of course I started drinking and often I'd go in there still drunk or so hung over, I'd start running and I'd be throwing up. Excuse my yawning. Okay. We just came off the back of, you know, as you know, Girl Live. And um, as soon as that event wrapped up the next day, I went and did a, a wrestling event in Chicago. And like I said, started filming for this docuseries. I haven't quite slowed down, slowed down yet or learned the, learned the art of that. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's when my gym, uh, so called it addiction. Yeah. Call it what it is started was, mm-hmm. was right after getting off of, uh, methamphetamines and, and getting to university. So, and to kind of like fast forward now, cause you have a program that you have, uh, for fitness as well, right? You're getting, yeah, massive. yeah I've got, yep. Yep. Get massive, uh, backbones, which is a back rehab program, recomp and change your body composition and then, um, body fit, which is at home training program. So yeah. That's so, that. so where can people go and find that? Um, us on my website. So it's Courtney Olson.com. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> about that. <laughs> Gotta sell it. <laughs> um, okay. And so how, I mean, I know the answer cause I read the book, but how, how did your, um, uh, how did drug addiction, uh, get started for you? Um, I, unfortunately my stepsister who was a year older than me, um, got into methamphetamines, you know, I'd say it was probably our junior, her junior year of high school, my sophomore year of high school. And then when she was a senior and I was a junior, I did it with her like once. And I remember we went to a party and, um, I, the people were doing keg stands and all the rest of it. And I had like three red solo cups, you know, those plastic Dixie mm-hmm. cups of beer. And I never at any point really felt drunk. It was really strange. I just was like super talkative and just wanted to talk to everybody. And then, you know, getting home at like three o'clock in the morning and not being able to fall asleep. And then the, the come down, you know, at like 7 a.m., I remember laying there in the bed being so depressed. And I was like, mm. screw this. This is horrible. Mm. I don't ever want to do that again. And then, you know, six months went by. 
or so and fast forward to my senior year and it was Sadie Hawkins. And then of course, after um, I, I actually DJed our dance and uh, I come to find out Sadie Hawkins was supposed to be like a dance to empower women because they asked the boys to the dance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's just ironic that it was that dance where, you know, it was meant to be this empowering <laughs> experience. And then, you know, I DJed the dance and by the time I got everything packed up and back over to my friend's house who she was supposed to be having like a house party and it was super quiet. And I, I walked in, I go in the back and there was like a circle of my friends in the back corner. And, um, I remember the porch light came on because it was one of those motion activated sensor ones. And it just, boom, was shining straight into my friend's eyes. And all I could see were like just black saucers. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and I kind of walked up a little closer because it was just, it was just this eerie feeling, you know, because they, had, they were, once, once your methamphetamines make you really, um, um, why am I blanking on this word? <laughs> uh, paranoid, mm. make you really paranoid. And, um, you know, all of a sudden there's just this air of paranoia and I'm looking around and when I see the pipe and I was like, Oh, uh, what's going on here. And so that was kind of history. Really. It was just like, Oh, well, you know, you've done it before. Um, you're not going to become homeless from doing it once. And so I did it again. And then from there it was just guns blazing. I, mm. I just fell in love with it, you know, cause course I didn't have an appetite and I knew better and knew just to say no but Mm -hmm. that is essentially what what kicked it off and there are people who can successfully just use that on the weekends and you know binge party or whatever not my experience Mm -hmm. not my experience so I mean I went balls to the walls right out the gates and um it just progressively got worse and worse and worse and worse and Mm -hmm. I started hanging out with drug dealers and uh, all the rest of it. So I did manage to get off of it for the couple of years I went off to college. But as soon as I got a DUI, cause I just replaced alcohol with meth, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing, as we say in narcotics anonymous, we say, um, you know, alcohol is a drug period mm-hmm. because it, you know, you get drunk and then you, you know, make poor decisions and you end up going back to your drug of choice most often than not. And, um, yeah, so I ended up getting a DUI uh, and moved back home to take a break because school was so hard <laughs> as a drunk. <laughs> and, um, when, as soon as I got back home to Humboldt County and back around like old, um, associates and whatnot, it was, it was on and cracking, you know? Mm-hmm. So I got back on it again, but this time it was crystal meth instead of just, um, speed. Mm-hmm. And that's way more addictive. And then I started drinking at the same time. So, cause previously when we started, when I started out doing it, I didn't, I never wanted to drink and the drug dealers would always try and get us to drink, you know, and turn into little loose whores or whatever. And I was mm-hmm. like, you don't want to mess up your high. And I was like, no, no, thank you. I'm good. But then, you know, you progress. And then it was crystal meth and drinking. Cause you had to drink in order to get yourself out of neutral. Mm-hmm. Cause you get so high, you know, you could hardly formulate a sentence. Your, your brain is racing so fast. So then you need the alcohol to bring that back down a little bit. And it's always just, you know, uppers, downers, laughers, and screamers. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And then that lasted for another, uh, up until 2007. So that was, you know, basically on and off for eight years, 
And then after um, the last day I, I smoked methamphetamines was July 4th, 2007. It was 4th of July. And, um, and then I wound up with like four felonies hanging over my head. So I was like, oh dear, probably a good time to get clean and sober. Cause I'd already been to rehab. I'd already been to the rooms of AA and NA. You know, I was familiar with what the disease was. I knew, I knew better. Mm-hmm. You know, I just kept trying to manage it and it never worked out. You know, at this point I'd wrecked five Hondas, including one motorcycle, hence why I've got this stupid bump sticking out of my shoulder right there. Um, and yeah, from there, um, I had like, I think I wanted to say I had about 90 days clean and sober. That seemed to be as far as I, as I could ever make it his 90 days. And then I hurt my back moving my brother. I think is what it was. And, um, I, somebody gave me some pain pills. And as soon as I saw that that curbed my appetite and unlike most people, um, these narcotics actually made me feel more energetic and more up, even though they're a depressant. Um, so then I started using them, you know, casually. And then of course I managed to do that for a short period of time before it was chewing up six to eight at a time. And then after about a year and a half of that, I graduated to Oxycontin and, um, which, you know, Oxy is just basically legal heroin. And I did that for about six months. Um, and that, you know, spiraled out of control really quickly. And at the end I was taking about 80 milligrams a day, um, which nets out back then it was about a dollar a milligram. So, you know, I was, having about an $80 a day pill habit, which is, um, pretty, pretty freaking expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what, how did you finally like kick it? Like, what was that pivotal, that turning point for you that you're like, no more? Yeah. Um, I actually, and I don't think I wrote about this in the book. I, I honestly can't remember. It was just so much content in there, but I had, um, at the time, cause I was still doing my, the muscle fetish stuff. And mm-hmm. I had an older gentleman that was a client that I let go way too far. Mm-hmm. And that was purely because I was high. I had no wits about me. Um, I had a really difficult time verbalizing my thoughts and it just got to the point where I started like nodding off in the middle of choking guys out with my legs. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, you know, re- really not a good situation. So, um, that was more or less the event that was the catalyst to my spiritual rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause so often we have like a health rock bottom or a financial rock bottom, you know, we've wrecked a car, we ran somebody over, you know, mm-hmm. what have you, um, generally speaking, it's something catastrophic, but this time around it was, um, unlike having felonies hanging over my head or, you know, wrecking cars, it was really a spiritual rock bottom. You know, I was so empty and, um, I was making incredible money, right. Charging $400 an hour, traveling all around the world, um, being my own boss, you know, doing something I was really good at, but it was not fulfilling my soul. And I really just felt like I was just waking up to make more money to acquire more debt to stress out about it. I had no stability. And I just thought this is so empty and Mm -hmm. meaningless. 
you know, and then also struggling so much with body dysmorphia and having all these guys be like, Oh, muscle goddess. And, you know, let me worship you and, you know, want to buy you gifts. And, and then as soon as they leave, you're just back in your head. Like I'm a fat, disgusting piece of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, so I knew that there was a disconnect because it's like, how, how are all these people seeing this? And I cannot stay happy for five minutes, you know, and it's, look, it's, I, I still struggle with it. You know, I'm, I'm just turned 12 yesterday. I have 12 years clean and sober. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, do I need to be on antidepressants? Like I am, you know, it's just this, the state of the world today. Um, being an entrepreneur is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a million dollar investment on the line for two months. And this guy every day for, you know, the last two months was like, oh, my team is one to five days out banking on that, you know, and meanwhile, I've hired people to fulfill these upper management roles and mm-hmm. placing all these orders. And then now all of a sudden all this funding falls through and it's like, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's always it, it, life. That's just life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once you're, once you've clean and you're clean and sober, you tend to be able to have a little bit more perspective. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that's, I forget what the original question was. <laughs> Just the turning point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I did see, I mean, congratulations on 12 years clean and sober. Like that's awesome. And like yeah. super proud of you um, as someone that has read your story and seen where you've come from and also just like followed your journey since, I don't know, whenever the hell girl, clo- <laughs> how old is girl clothing now? Uh, six and a half. Yeah. So six and a half years. Um, uh, how, okay. So we kind of skipped over the whole muscle fetish thing and I don't want to skip over. That. <laughs> so, um, how did you get into that? And, um, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit about how did that change your own like body image, like perspective? Um, yeah. I mean, you talked about, you know, that it didn't quite connect internally about, you know, how amazing and beautiful you actually are. Um, but how did you get into it and what, how did that change your perspective? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I was on Craigslist of all places. Cause I used to do a fair bit of nude modeling and like topless modeling and whatever. Um, so I was the uh, general, uh, sorry, the internet sales manager for an auto group. And I hated my job. I absolutely hated it. And there's just this huge fear of being in debt, you know, and at the time, I think my credit card debt was like four grand, you know, now I'm like 400. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe whatever. It's not 400, but it's up there. (laughs) Uh, You know, but at the time in my mid twenties, that was, that stressed me out so much. And I just felt like I was going to be trapped in this job with this really low ceiling, doing something I hated. And, um, I was on Craigslist and I came across this ad that said muscular calf video shoot ballerinas and athletes must apply. And it was like a hundred bucks an hour or something. And I was like, Oh, what? That sounds amazing. <laughs> it sounds like porn though. Let me go ahead and take a picture of my calf muscles. <laughs> and so I did <laughs> sent it off, not having a clue, you know, as to what would come of it. And then the next day, the guy was in my office and explaining to me that, you know, there's this website where you make short video clips and sell them. 
this whole world of guys that were, you know, really into calf muscles. And I was like, what? All right, well, whatever. I don't care. Just pay me. So I went down there to Oakland, California in the Bay area. And, um, sure enough, I did, uh, this guy had me like reach up in his wife's closet and try and like get her purses down whilst he's filming my calf muscles. Mm -hmm. And then he, um, put the camera on a tripod and was like instructing me on how to choke him out with my legs, AKA scissoring. I was like, all right, this is strange. And then his wife came home from the gym. I think she was training a client or something. And she was talking about, you know, a session that she had later on that night and was going to get, you know, it was a foot session and, guy was paying her $300 to worship her feet. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> wait, 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 whoa, 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 back up. What do you mean? What do you mean? And, uh, sure enough, you know, I, I just could not believe it. And that was my first introduction to sessions. And then I did a, a photo shoot and then his friend came over who owns a, a website where women, you know, are, are flexing and so forth. And we went out jack london square and he was trying to you know instruct me on okay front double bicep and i'm like a what you know <laughs> he's like like this i'm like like this you know and i'm flexing and so um that was an, an experience and he said yeah you'd be great on a webcam and i was like oh no i can't i can't do that my boyfriend would get super pissed off and he said no no it's not like that you know you just go on there and flex like the most risque thing you'd do is take your shirt off if you wanted to hmm. I said, well, I didn't wear a shirt until the fifth grade. So it doesn't sound that big of a deal. <laughs> and, um, so I, I started out on a webcam and got familiarized with this whole world and then moved into, um, you know, making custom videos and then eventually and finally sessions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was just truly mind blowing to me, you know, to do, um, all these different things. And at the time, my boyfriend was like, I don't want you doing anything that's, you know, not athletic. So, because there's, there's a lot of different categories within this world of strong women, right? So some, some guys are just purely into wrestling. Um, and then some of them within the wrestling domain is, you know, semi-competitive and competitive guys actually want to try and beat you. Um, and then there is fantasy you know, guys that know that they wouldn't stand a chance or they can't risk getting any kind of injuries or bruises on their face. And so they just want to be pinned down basically, and just kind of feel like they're being overpowered. And then sometimes there's somewhere in between, you know, so, um, anything from that to, um, then there's like muscle worship where guys are obsessed with your biceps or your calf muscles or your lats or your legs Uh, and then there's things like scissoring where they want to get choked out, you know, and hence how I started crushing watermelons between my legs, (laughs) uh, arm wrestling is another big one. You know, they want to try and arm wrestle you. Um, and then they break down into like smaller categories, like humiliation, you know, they want to get made fun of like, oh, you got beat by a girl or there's like tickling fetish. There's belly punching. There's, you know, guys who are into, like I said, feet or hairy (laughs) armpits, Um, it just truly blew my mind because Mm -hmm. literally it was a contradiction to everything that I had been programmed to believe what was considered desirable and beautiful for a woman to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, it, 
really coincided with this whole concept of, you know, women not being the weaker sex and, you know, um, embracing being strong. And it was just really, truly fascinating and mind blowing. So again, that was my original intent was to write a book purely about that because I wanted women to know like, Hey, you know, when you leave your house, if you know, you're upset because your boots won't go up over your giant calves and you think you're a fat heifer. Mm-hmm. Well, I got news for you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch of dudes out there who would sit and pay 400 bucks an hour to worship your big heifer calf muscles, you know, mm-hmm. no sex. And mm-hmm. that's like, that's, that was the hardest part for me to wrap my head around. Where I was like, how, you know, supply and demand work. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I might be shooting myself in the foot because, you know, when I produce this docuseries, I'm sure we're going to open up a whole new hmm. avenue of women and, and their desirability to get strong and, and jacked up. So, and then all of a sudden the market will be saturated. And <laughs> everyone will have to drop their rates, and, but I'm fine with that. So yeah, super fascinating stuff. The internet's an interesting place where you do, you find so many people that will worship or, um, interesting things that you didn't re- think were interesting about yourself. 100%. Well, mm-hmm. and the thing too is, you know, and again, gender is not binary, but in my experience, you know, I, I speak to men and women because I, I don't, I just, I, I know, you know, there are people who are non-binary of course, and so forth. But when talking about the masculine and feminine energy mm-hmm. and the gender roles that come with those labels, um, you know, it's, uh, that that's where my experience there and lies. And so I've never had a woman book a session with me, um, you know? And so I would always be like, what, what is it? Cause I would like, why are men so weird? <laughs> you know, I mean, cause they're the whole, whole gamut of whether they want to get like kicked in the balls repeatedly or, you know, like I said, humiliated. Um, and th- you think like, oh, well, these must be like high powered CEOs or lawyers or whatever. And oftentimes, you know, these are kids out of college or mm-hmm. computer programmers or a car mechanic, you know, sure. You get your fair share of, um, everything, you know, lawyers, mm-hmm. doctors, cops, doesn't matter. But I, I just started to really look into, you know, how, gender defines our experience and you know um just how bizarre it was really and and seeing how these guys I'm like when did this start for you um you know what kind of sensory like is it just this you're visual these visual creatures whereas women were like hey let's just have a wine a glass of wine non-alcoholic whatever mm-hmm. and have a chat and a cuddle you know and these and guys are like well let me pretend to be a rug and please step on my face <laughs> what? <laughs> what is going on here <laughs> so yeah like what, it's still, what need is that fulfilling yeah. exactly you know and I I still haven't figured that out and that's in part you know my quest in producing this docuseries is to try and pull that back a bit and really mm-hmm. figure out what is it, you know, and and how they work. And of course, then to let women know, you know, whatever bullshit is keeping you in the house, feeling sorry for yourself, because you think you're too fat to whatever, and you're not good enough. And you're so depressed about it. You don't even want to leave to say, look, the world is not what you think it is, you know? Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. uh, not even close. And I would venture to say that one out of five guys is falls into this camp, into this category of, you know, being not normal mm -hmm. um, and not giving a single F-U-C-K about um, what we think is. They, they don't see cellulite. I mean, they might see it, but they're, they don't have the same hatred mm -hmm. for it that we do. You know, so it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So. So I know you've done a lot of work with, um, with young girls, um, with, uh, and read her book, but camp confidence, <laughs> um, and, and that leading into like what you do with girl clothing. Um, but where do you think this, like, do you think it's all coming from the media or where do you think it is that us women are learning, um, that we have to be perfect in order to be worthy? That's a really good question. Uh, everywhere, mm -hmm. society at large, you know, so often we'll hear it from the most likely of people, teachers, you know, they're just regurgitating things or reconfirming beliefs or saying stuff subconsciously that they're not even aware uh, that is being toxic. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't give you an example. Well, maybe something like you know, oh, she's going to, her dad's going to need a shotgun when she gets older or, mm -hmm. you know, all these little mm -hmm. tiny, small, little micro things that better watch out boys. Yeah. <laughs> things like exactly that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So, um, you know, it, it, it comes from us and bombards us from every corner of society. Um, you know, so, but media obviously being the biggest one advertising hundred mm -hmm. percent. So that's why it was, you know, so important to create girl and to, to start a conversation around it. Cause it's about building awareness, you know, right. Cause I always say, if there's no awareness of a problem, then there's no problem to solve. Mm -hmm. So first we got to get really clear on what the problem is. And the problem is, is that we all think there's something wrong with us, you know, and that we're not good enough. So yeah, I, I would definitely say it's, it's for sure the, the advertising industry at large. Yeah. And so how did girl clothing come about then? Um, it was started off the back. I created a program for teenage girls. As she said, camp confidence that, um, long story short, cause it is a bit of a story. I had met my husband and I told him, I said, look, you know, I want to be speaking to women. And, you know, we kind of parked that thought and I launched a brand called confidence by Courtney and was going to make a YouTube channel <laughs> and do all this stuff. And had I stuck with it, well, boy, <laughs> of course I didn't. Cause everything wasn't good enough. The videos weren't good enough and I didn't have any focus. And he ended up getting a job as a CEO of a national rugby team. And I came on as the assistant strength training coach. And I still had all my old video content out on the web and, uh, a journalist came across it. Um, but prior to him coming across it, I decided, you know, that I wanted to still work with teenage girls in some capacity. Cause that was always of interest to me. And, um, I, uh, had applied with big brother, big sister as a volunteer. And then the very next day, this journalist published a story and, you know, I was on the front page of the paper 
saying, you know, that I was a ex fetish porn star and my husband had hired me to work with teenagers and like, what a disgrace. And really I, I was the, the pictures that they took off my Facebook and the way they positioned everything in the headline. I mean, it just made me look like such a piece of trash. I mean, it was atrocious. Um, and so I had all these mothers, you know, bagging me out online. I don't want that slut training my son. And then I saw the power of syndication and I watched this story syndicate across the world. So from the UK to India, to New Zealand, you know, and then of course in Australia, all the other papers, Sydney Morning Herald, um, you know, 50 shades of may. Cause that's my husband's last name. It was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking like, how is this news? This is not news. Like this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. And fortunately I had just finished working the 12 steps, you know, so I'd done a lot of work in recovery. Um, I had just watched a documentary by Jean Kilborn called killing us softly, which I highly, highly, highly recommend everybody watch. So I was acutely aware of how much the media likes to bag out women and put us in a position of being powerless, right? Mm -hmm. Because a year prior, a rugby player in New Zealand had actually married a proper porn star and the whole country was high-fiving him. Hmm. But yet I came along and it was like the most disgusting, foulest pile of shite known to man, you know? Um, And my husband was such a disrespectful, negligent person for bringing me on board. I mean, they just really put me through the mud. And, um, you know, having watched this documentary, I could see how you know, all the men in the commercials in Australia were either barbecuing or changing a tire, um, drinking beer on Forex Island, and all the women were changing diapers, doing school pickup, cleaning toilets. And I was like, wow, this is really powerful. So I, I held my head pretty high and, you know, managed to stay sober for one um, and, you know, keep my wits about myself. But then after about a month, because this went on for quite some time, big brother, big sister called me and they said, hey, we got your application. We're really sorry. We can't work with you because of what's going on in the media. Mm -hmm. And that's when it hit me. And that's when I had this whole, you know, breakdown, poor me, sobbing, crying. And um, shortly thereafter, though, I just had a, a God shot, if you will. And it was like all of a sudden the word no flashed across my face. And I was like, you know what, screw that. I'm going to start my own program ran by people who've been there and done that and not just read it out of a textbook. And so I sat at my kitchen table for the next nine months and put together a curriculum of all the stuff that I wish I'd been taught when I was in school and essentially created the framework for camp confidence, which was teaching the five habits, lessons, and principles that lead to the development of self-love. And then after that is achieved, then of course we can focus on building a sisterhood. And it was at that point I wrote the pledge, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. pledge, which is on all of our hang tags for girl clothing. And then, you know, the idea was these girls would take the pledge, get this little silicone, you know, turquoise bracelet. Mm -hmm. And then if they ever saw other girls from other camps out on the street, you know, it was like a symbolic thing. They knew straight away that that other girl was not their competition. 
and it actually happened a couple times because we had about eight camps we had 62 graduates go through the program and um, these girls were actively cutting themselves you know severe bullying issues self-esteem issues some had drug addiction um and they had a remarkable two-day experience where they got to you know, make 10 new best friends, learn about nutrition, fitness, self-defense, meditation, um, you know, all these things, assertiveness, um, social media, savvy skills, like just things that really should be taught in school. And um, it was incredible. And then in the downtime, one of my partners got pregnant and we, my husband, who's a, a genius said, you know, why don't you take the same vision and mission and roll that into a clothing line? And instead of reaching 10 teenage girls in this tiny corner of Australia, you can now talk to women all around the world. Because what I was noticing is when these girls would go back home, there would be a, a, a disconnect, you know, and then like an unwinding, if you will, of all the great stuff that they took away. And I was kind of like looking at it. I'm like, well, what's going on? It's like, oh, mom needs this message just as much mm-hmm. as she does, mm-hmm. right? So, um, if, if not even more, mm-hmm. so it was, um, it was, it was made sense to, to create this. And oddly enough, a year prior to, um, coming up with the name, we had created a company called like a girl clothing G I R L. And it sat on a shelf for a year, but it was right before, um, the feminine hygiene company always had come out with a campaign called like a girl and they were interviewing, you know, five, six-year-old girls on what does it look like to run like a girl and they're running and they're getting it. And then they ask teenagers and they're like flopping around, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, that came out shortly after we had registered that company. So it was almost like, you know, a sign from God being like, yeah, you must, um, pursue this and then um again we revisited it went and met with the designer and the designer was like oh it sounds really flowery and you know and so Dave was thinking like well how Courtney spells her name differently how could we spell girl and it just popped up into his head girl and he said all right that's it and he was unfamiliar with you know there's um a riot girl from the 90s you know which was big in America he's from England um, you know, he, he had no recollection. He, he was unaware of that. So it was just, it, it was just ironic, if you will. Um, and, and work, you Google the definition of GRRRL and it's something about a borderline aggressive yet assertive, confident woman. It's mm. like, yep, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's how it got started. Um, and that was six and a half years ago. And, um, can you share some of like the ethos behind it? Um, like, I love the fact that like the sizing, the way you do your sizing, um, and, and, uh, your advertising and things like, I think that is what, like, as someone that started whatever wearing girl clothing six and a half years ago and still wears it every single day is one of the things that like keeps me coming back. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we, we, uh, our point of difference is, is we don't use sizes and, um, instead use athletes names and body types, um, which of course allows women to find their true 
fit because, you know, in Nike, you could be a small and Reebok, you could be an extra large. It's just women's sizing is all over the shop, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, this also allowed us to askew global sizing because we have distribution in Canada, the UK, Australia, you know, and all their sizing is different as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, but taking away the stigma around being a three XL or a two XL, you know, mm -hmm. and not needing to shop in the petite section or the plus size section. It's like, we're all just bodies. Mm -hmm. Like let's take away the emphasis on what category we're supposed to fit into, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a big part of it. And then of course, not making a vow to not use Photoshop, you know, mm -hmm. Coco, one of our um, size athletes, she had really bad eczema on her legs. And I was just looking back through some of the photo shoots and I thought, wow, that's really cool. Like, it's just, you know, you can clearly see that we, what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. You know, there've been shoots where I've <laughs> looked at the bottom of my feet and I'm like, oh, <laughs> they're like covered in dirt. You know, the, <laughs> the bottom of my feet are essentially black. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> Makes it better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, because that stuff has such a huge impact on our subconscious when we see airbrushed images, mm. it really just takes the humanity out of our experience. You know, we're not supposed to look like fluffy painted polished rocks. It's <laughs> <laughs> not how it's meant to be. Yeah. So really trying to normalize what's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also really appreciate with the sizing that um, being athletic does not equal being skinny. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That you can be, a, 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 you, you are still an athlete, even if you're in a larger body um, that doesn't negate <laughs> your athleticism, right. uh, which I think is an important message because, you know, use Nike as an example. Like I don't look like any of the Nike models. Yep ever yeah <laughs> they look great but that does not represent me whatsoever yeah yeah um, so we talk a lot about um social rebellion um and i know you have all of these things that you're doing that you've experienced that you've gone through what would you say would be your like primary social rebellion thing something that from society that you are trying to fight against your number one um laws about our bodies you know that's one thing i've i've found myself to become quite placid i suppose when it comes to a lot of topics because i just don't have the energy to to argue you know mm -hmm. and I don't, I'm, I'm kind of in that point now where I'm like, I'm too old to be rocking the boat and I just, I can't be bothered, but you know, and, and I still of course have the, the issue of people pleasing and, and wanting to be for everybody, you know, but at the end of the day, you, you can't, if you're making everybody happy, you're doing something wrong. And what that, that number one stance is, is pro-choice right and and women having autonomy over their body um you know and i know that can be a a sticky topic for a lot of people and it's like well you have no effing right to tell another woman what she can and can't do with her body mm -hmm. because it conflicts with your religious views 
because the reality is, is that God isn't going to come down and care for that child, Mm -hmm. you know, or, uh, nor is the state, nor is the government, Mm -hmm. you know, they just want to have control over us. And it's just, it's so archaic. It it truly blows my mind. We are so bass backwards here in the United States on that topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, any woman that gets an abortion, it's not like it's something that they really are comfortable with and want to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, So it's just, that would, that would probably be my number one thing. Just listening to you say it, like I had a hard time keeping from laughing out loud at how ridiculous it is. That's right. like, if you were to say to me, no, Kristen, you could not go off and do this thing because it's against what I believe. Like, how does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, Courtney, I want to do this. Nope. You can't, I don't believe it. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. And yeah, I, I, I certainly, was laughing internally at how ridiculous in the grand scheme of life that ultimately is. Truly. Mm-hmm. So see, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a part of your book club. So like, <laughs> like do I, does it still pertain to me? Um, <laughs> yeah. um, you know what I mean? It's uh, and as a Canadian, you know, watching what's happening in the States, right? Like we're not perfect. Like there's the whole uh, conversation about actual access to, um, you know, to healthcare versus like the legalization or, or you know, what it's legal and what's uh, accessible. Um, but it seems like, yeah, it does seem um, like a step backwards in, in women's rights. Yeah. It should be. It really, it really truly is, you know? Um, everything is a case by case situation too. It's like to tell that to a woman who's just been raped by her uncle mm-hmm. that she has to see this pregnancy to full term. Like you're having a laugh. Yeah. You're having an absolute fucking laugh. Um, you know, and like when it comes to, uh, say I was asked on a radio interview a couple of days ago about how in 2019, you know, I had made a, a stand uh, made a statement rather that, you know, I supported trans women, transgender athletes and sports. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I shared the story. I think this was in a a different newspaper article or something where I had talked about how I had a, um, grappling match with a transgender woman. And I didn't know she was transgender. We, you know, we were matched, very equally in terms of pound for pound skill for skill mm-hmm. and uh you know we we went really hard and neither one of us was able to submit the other person and you know I was very happy with the outcome and then a couple hours later I found out that they were trans she was transgender and I was like oh well that's interesting and I truly believe that um, beliefs control everything. You know, my favorite quote is Henry Ford saying, you know, whether you think you can, or you think you can't either way, you're right. Mm -hmm. So had I gone into that knowing, and then had a belief that, you know, it was unfair, they would have an advantage or whatever the case is, Mm -hmm. it would have been a, a, a different outcome. So I do believe that, you know, beliefs do control everything. And, and, pave our experience as humans. Um, so it's, it's a really tricky thing because, you know, for example, we have Janae Kroc, who has been a girl athlete 
and she has world records in powerlifting, right? Mm -hmm. um, from previous times. And when she competes in jujitsu now, she competes in the men's division, mm -hmm. right? There are M MMA, women MMA fighters who have busted skulls of their opponents who are, you know, they're have they're trans that are transgender. So it's it it's really it's a really a, a tricky topic, you know, in a case by case thing. And nobody's gonna win. I mean, there will always be somebody that loses. Not everybody's gonna win, you know. So um it's just unfortunate that we, we you know, have got to figure this out. Um and that people are just wanting to chop each other off at the knees without listening to one another. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's really a, a case by case situation. The same with, you know, a woman's body. Like I said, a majority of women don't, they're not excited about going through with it. I know I certainly wasn't, I've had two abortions and I was on birth control both times and, um, using extensively and God knows what would have happened, you know, had I had that child, that's just mm -hmm. not this is not something that I was even capable of doing myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, but people don't get clean and sober because they have kids, <laughs> you know? And in mm -hmm. fact, it just makes their life more fucked up, mm -hmm. um, the, the child. So yeah, but again, you know, you take away the right, then it's just, there's just no conversation to be had. So I think people need to have autonomy. We need to take in outside things into consideration Mm -hmm. And people need to work on listening to one another as opposed to focusing on needing to be right, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. What listening works. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. It's amazing. People should try it. <laughs> um, one of the thing, another thing we always talk about is creating good trouble. Um, what does creating, what does good trouble mean to you? And what are you doing to create good trouble in the world? That's a really good question. Uh, good trouble, I suppose, would be just defying the social norm and creating a new path, you know, um, not just going along with whatever is trending or you know what we're supposed to be doing and instead doing what you want to do and that might cause waves for other people it might conflict with them because again their beliefs are that we're supposed to act a certain way we're supposed to look a certain way we're supposed to talk a certain way and when you fall out of line with that it can really push people's buttons but if you're not doing what's true to yourself then you know you're not going to live a fulfilled life you're going to feel like a trapped caged animal. So I suppose it's, it's really encouraging women to, to do what they want to do despite being told otherwise. Um, so I guess, I, yeah, that would, that would be my answer. <laughs> That's a great question, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we came up with it. <laughs> great job. Um, so you just wrapped up um, girl live. Um, I'd love to, as someone that's always wanted to go and has, hasn't yet gone, yep. um, can you tell us what, uh, what girl live is all about? Yeah, you bet. Um, it's essentially 
trying to mimic camp confidence. So give all these women an opportunity to come together in person and share experiences. Um, this year's theme was fear, face everything and rise. And we took the girls, the participants through a bit of a journey. You know, that first day was um, listening to some speakers to get people raw, you know, and into their feelings and to really reflect on trauma and the stuff that we've been through, whether it's, you know, molestation and physical abuse to body dysmorphia, you know, and somewhere in between, but regardless of what your trauma is to, you know, bring that up, hash it, start looking at it. And then we took them through, um, some really intense breath work with this incredible, incredible, I call him a shaman. Um, and you know, I think that was from, from getting the feedback that was probably the most profound part of the weekend was women doing this breath work journey. And then, you know, again, getting everybody, um, to, to look at that stuff and to process it and then, um, open up workshops. So, you know, then they can feel empowered. So it's like creating the awareness, looking at the problems, going through the journey, processing the trauma, and then coming out the other side and, and partaking in empowering activities. So there was a variety of sports, arm wrestling, powerlifting, acro yoga, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, parkour. Um, and then of course, stuff for people who aren't able-bodied, unpacking privilege, uh, crystal bowl, sound meditation. Um, and then we had pro wrestling as well, offsite in a ring, which was really cool. And give women the opportunity to leave on, oh, and uh, sexy chair dancing. <laughs> uh, but give women the opportunity to leave on a really high note. And then the next day we got into self-defense, you know, again, so facing more trauma, preparing ourselves, um, and then doing some personal development activities, which are experiential because, you know, you can go and sit in a room and take notes, but it's so much better to like experience an activity. And that takes it from your head to your soul, if you will, not to sound like a dirty hippie, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, by, by experiencing it, it, we, then becomes part of your programming. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to sit and like refer back to a set of notes. It's just there. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of, you know, your subconscious and it just pops up. Mm -hmm. um, and this one activity we did is called Tommy Boy, where, you know, there's a scene in Tommy Boy. I don't know if you remember that movie with Chris mm -hmm. Farley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where um, he lights this guy's car on fire, um, trying to sell him brake pads. And you know, the whole script itself is about a paragraph and it, it takes about a minute um, to, to recite the whole thing. But when you put in all the little extra bits, you know, talking about um, uh, basically like a, a director's cut, you know, like, okay, now you pick up the car and light it on fire and, you know, um, David Spade rolls his eyes and this guy does this, it comes out to about three pages. So when you hand people the script, you know, it's really overwhelming. And you're like, what? I have two hours to memorize this. You've lost your mind. And we give them through lunch as well. So it's like, well, you have the option because right. How often we procrastinate and put stuff off or, you know, be, make ourselves into the victim when it's like, well, you had an extra hour during lunch. You have the choice. You have the power to decide how you want to best utilize your time. 
But the whole point of the activity is to teach women that repetition is the mother of all skill, mm-hmm. right? And by over and over and over and practicing, you eventually get it. And that's how you build confidence. Mm-hmm. That's how you get good at something. Mm-hmm. So just the other day I had a, I needed to memorize, not just the other day, this was months ago, feels like just the other day, but I needed to memorize um, 14 slides for a four minute pitch deck for I'm an investor. And I thought, oh my God, there's no way. <laughs> and then at boom, all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, hold on. Cause I did this activity like eight years ago at a network marketing conference of all places. And, um, I said, oh, that's right. I've done this. I can do this, you know, mm-hmm. but someone just telling me, oh, you can sit down and memorize this. You just have to practice it. Okay. <laughs> but once you do it, you know, and you show yourself. So we had, a, a two finalists that tied cause you know, we'd have small groups of, uh, eight and then one winner per group. And then that group goes up on stage and we pick a winner by ways of applause. Um, but they seem to have tied. So they split, it was like a thousand dollar gift card plus a coaching session with me. And then a lot of, um, other small little gifts and stuff. So they ended up splitting it, but yeah, that was, that was pretty awesome. And then, um, a few closing speakers, um, including my husband who actually talked about, his own personal experience of last year and um, attempting to take his own life mm-hmm. and talking about the importance of mental health and, you know, just sharing some tips with that. So, you know, it was a really amazing way to end the weekend. Cause there's, you know, all about women empowerment and women, women, women. And then our final speaker is a man bringing this male energy, you know, reiterating that we are, bringing peace to the world and, you know, softening, um, these hard shields on these men. And it was, it was really, it was really quite amazing. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was great. Um, just, you know, I wish we had more women there. Mm-hmm. We had a massive wave of COVID that came through. And in fact, I got, I got the vid like a couple of weeks before the event. Mm-hmm. So I had fortunately tested negative the week of, so thank God. That would have been, that would have been a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we'll, we're, we're already looking at dates for next year. And, and then of course, how we rinse and repeat that and take it up to you in Canada. So you don't have to travel down here to, uh, Las Vegas, even though Mm -hmm. it is a great excuse for people to come and have a little holiday. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. there's, I don't know if there's that many of us girls on uh, the West Coast, but the West Coast would be a great place. To, right, right. <laughs> to I'm sure the Toronto girls would be like, no, no, no. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. That's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky to be like, oh, where do we go to next? Yeah. But yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so before yeah. we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add or like to ask us or anything we missed? No, really. I mean, I just so appreciated your support when I was going through that really difficult time, you know, and then of course went through it again. Right. Mm -hmm. So after publishing my book, you know, I, um, my thyroid crapped the bed again and went through that whole period of, um, not sleeping. And, uh, I got back on the horse after about three months and then last year in December, oh, it was about January, I guess, of, of this year, I stopped sleeping again. 
And that, that went on for about six weeks. And just to know that you were there was super helpful. But again, I don't know if it was hormonal, if it was a stress response, if it was thyroid related, mm-hmm. you know, because I was getting all these tests and, you know, uh, inconclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just super weird, super, super weird. But, you know, to get through that and come out the other side and just so appreciate the support and, you know, because it's scary. But now, and whenever I have little windows where I don't sleep, I'm like, okay, well, you know, even if it's a month and a half, at least, you know, it'll pass. Mm-hmm. Cause it's that feeling of thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to sleep again. Yeah. That's so debilitating. You're like, oh my God, this is, this is I'm never going to, I'm going to be crazy. Yeah. You know, but just knowing that it will eventually pass and you will eventually start sleeping again. That was, it's helped a lot. So yeah, I, I think I've shared my whole story on this podcast, but that's how I got into wanting to coach women's health because same thing, I suddenly stopped sleeping. It was very yeah. suddenly and I, it was a struggle to find um, support. Like yeah. my doctor wanted to put me on antidepressants. Um, like that's not the problem. Like, um, yeah, I feel like shit now because I haven't slept in like four weeks, but, um, you know, and it really led me down to that, like researching hormones and understanding and, and educating myself so that I could, uh, help other women as much as I can. Um, because it's crazy. Like I, the thing, the, one of the worst parts for me when I went through that insomnia was a feeling of isolation and like, my family doctor didn't seem to give a shit. Um, And none of my friends had dealt with it either. So they, as much as they could be as supportive as they could, they didn't quite actually understand what, uh, what was happening, what what I was going through. And I couldn't work. I couldn't train. I couldn't do anything. Like you said, you literally feel like you're going crazy. Um, And I felt like the only time I ever actually got a really decent little sleep was when I like cried my eyes out for about five hours and then was exhausted and would fall into like sleep for a couple of hours. Um, but you're right to come out of it. And there's still times when like, even last night, I remember having the thought as I turned out my lamp, um, to go to bed, I thought, how am I going to fall asleep? Like, how does this work? Cause you, you, you want to outthink the sleep and you can't you can't like okay go but that's not how it works and it still creeps out from time to time just in my those those um those beliefs of like oh I'm not going to be able to fall asleep um and this is like what three years later um but yeah um appreciate you and anytime you're not sleeping you know that at least someone understands (laughs) yeah I understand that shit appreciate that yeah no it's been a great chat i appreciate the opportunity to Uh oh (laughs) (laughs) so your internet connection is unstable so that was really good timing good timing (laughs) wait till the end (laughs) yeah yeah awesome it's been so great to have you thank you for joining us thank you for having me and uh we'll I'll let you know when we get this date picked in the next couple of weeks so you can start planning to come down next year. Awesome. Far out. All right, girls, we have a great one and um, we'll talk to you soon. You too. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe and share with your friends. You can also find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcast to keep up with the latest episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Pop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs. And keep creating good trouble.